Hello and welcome to The Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. G'day everybody and welcome to The Coaching Podcast. I feel a little bit let's say, uh, excited and nervous, and I'm not sure why, but you know when you get to interview those people that are a little bit special? Bob Litwin, you are one of those people in my life, and I cannot wait to actually formally interview you. I know we chat all the time, but when I get a moment to actually just unpack your brain uh, for our listeners, nothing feels better. So Bob Litwin, welcome to the show. No, thanks, Emma. I appreciate it. For those of you who don't know him, he's a performance coach. Uh, he's a three-time tennis world champion, 27-time U.S. national champion, and was ranked number one in the world in the seniors in tennis. He spent last 40 years using the new story method to coach Wall Street analysts and traders, and his book is called Live the Best Story of Your Life, and I use it uh, myself. I use it with my clients. And it really is a, a fantastic methodology that we're going to talk about on the show. So without further ado, Vegemite. Our first question is the Australian spread of Vegemite. Have you tried it? Of course I've tried it. Love that. Love it or hate it? I pass. Pass. Pass on it. <laughs> I mean, All I right. was in Australia. I had to have it. Absolutely. It's, it's something you have to try. I'm glad you gave it a go and you're a pass. So in that case, can you share with us a coaching moment that didn't go well and what was the lesson? At the time I was teaching tennis, which I did for 35 years, I had a client that was a very, uh, a very fine tennis player. I mean, he was, he, was, he was a very good tennis player and he was making a lot of good moves. He was starting to play national tournaments. He was um, a difficult client because he really didn't want to learn from me. He just wanted to play tennis with me. And yeah, you know, I'm okay with that too. At that point, you know, it's like, it was fine. I mean, of course I want to teach people and have them get better. That's my more of my function. But he just wanted to play with me. And But I couldn't really help myself, but still have a lot of suggestions for him about what he might do with his game. And he would just do what he wanted to do. I was really tempted to stop teaching him because it was a difficult experience for me to continue to get rejected on things that I thought were really going to be helpful for him. And so one day I confronted him and I said, look, we've been doing this for a couple of years. And like, I don't understand why you are taking lessons with me. I get it. You want to play tennis with me, but you don't need to take lessons with me to play tennis with me. I'll play tennis with you when we set it up. I mean, that'll be it. And I'll just compete against you. And I said, you're just like, you're wasting your money. And I just don't get it. I don't get it. And it was a confrontational moment for me that I wasn't really that comfortable with. And he basically said to me, you know, don't forget, you work for me. And it was great. Because I think I had gotten to a point in my in my coaching where I thought that the client was working for me in a way. And that what I said was 
more relevant. And I realized I hadn't really been listening to him about the things that he wanted to do and be. He wanted to do certain things on the court. And I thought back to the story of Greg, Greg Rosetsky when he went to Boletari's. And he, was, he wanted to serve in volley. He was a junior. He wanted to serve in volley. And Nick was only teaching one model then, you know, big, big forward run around forehand, dropping out the baseline, defend with your backhand. And, you know, they said to Rizeski, you're never going to make it. You're not athletic enough. You're not this, you're not that. And, you know, of course, the story is Rizeski basically went ahead and did what he wanted and became a certain volleyer. I remember that story and I was struck by the fact that I was doing what Boletari did, which was, I know better. It was a bad coaching moment for me because of the way in which I confronted him. But the outcome, as is often the case when something bad happens, is that I learned something, and that changed my coaching by 180 degrees, really, where I realized I do work for the client, and the client is going to, in one way or another, let me know what they really want and what they want to do and who they want to be. And who am I to tell somebody the way they should play? I'm a lefty, they're a righty. I mean, what could be more of a different, right? Or I'm athletic and they're not. Or I'm six feet tall and they're like six foot five. There's so much there that gets a person to know what they want. And, you know, just as a coaching thing, I feel like my job is to draw out of people who they aspire to be and that I will coach them in that even if I don't agree that it would be a great idea. It's not for me to decide. That's a different job. It's like mentoring and, you know, tell what to do. Well, I couldn't agree more. And that story just reminds me of my chapter one <laughs> when I didn't realize that the true meaning of coaching is to draw out who they aspire to be, to unlock the learning that lives within them based on what their goals are and aspirations are and what they want to get out of the session. So uh, we're off to a, a great start because that is how I live my life in chapter two. <laughs> Although I've probably had more than two chapters already. But anyway, as as have you, many very interesting chapters. So um, all right, what about on the flip side? Can you think of a coaching moment that went really well and what was the lesson? It came very true with a particular client I was working with who was a a finance guy. Uh, he was the founder of a hedge fund. He was struggling. He called me up. He, he actually had been working with a coach, and he said, the coach is too spiritual for me. I like it. But like, I need like performance. I need answers about what to do because I'm invested in something that is going south. And I'm bleeding money. And it was like a restaurant chain that he was involved with that they were just ramping up at the beginning of COVID in New York. So it was a bad time. And But he really wanted to do this, this thing with, with his family. Um, they were involved with it. And it was a side thing for him. So... I did what I always do. I like listen to somebody and they tell me their stories about what's, you know, what they do well, what they don't do well, and what's interfering with, in this case, him being able to make a decision about I should stop or keep going. 
and like be all in or get out. And I just, I had, I had a feeling as is often the case that people come in with an idea of what they want to work on and it's just a catalyst for them experiencing growth. And one day he, he called me up. He'd been struggling with it, trying to get the answer. And I, I was not like, I wasn't avoiding it. I just wasn't really going there with him because I felt that something had to shift for him internally. And I needed to give him the space in the room. And sometimes that's hard to do, you know, as a coach, when you think you know what they ought to be thinking about. And he calls me up one day. He says, you know, I just came back from a weekend. I was up in upstate New York in the country area. And I was like walking around this beautiful property. And it was really early in the morning. And the dew was rising. And like the smell was beautiful. And it's like, and I realized, why can't I be feeling like this every morning when I get up? And he said, what I realized is you seem to give me enough room to find out that what I really came to you for was to find out that I want to wake up every morning of my life joyfully. The good coaching part was that I was able to hang in there and just stay solid with not giving him answers and just kind of like in some way when he would approach me backing off from him a little bit so that he kept moving more in my direction, but also in exploring himself. So, you know, that for me, it reinforces the the way I coach, which is to really just, I let it happen and it's very organic. And, you know, I admit I don't take notes and I don't try to remember things because everything is what's going on in the present moment that I'm with somebody. I've got half a page of notes, sorry, <laughs> but I'm very present. <laughs> that good. Okay, those are great. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think as a young coach and even I find myself now, I would find that hard to, if a client's coming to me, like we had a great session and then they're, they're coming to me and they're saying, hey, you know, what, what should I do in this situation? And I would find that hard to not respond. So does that come with wisdom and, and experience over time of knowing when to hang in there and just to pull back? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the more you do something, the better you get at it, I think for sure. And in particular, it's something that's creative, which is what coaching is. It's different than like how many times you're doing the pole vault, which is more physical, but there's a lot of stuff learned there as well. But I think this work is very creative, and I feel like creative work requires a lot of patience, and that we move at the we move at the tempo of nature, which is like patient yet very dynamic. Things are happening pretty well for nature; they've it's figured it out. But as far as like wisdom goes, I have a friend out here who's very very sick, and I spent a lot of time with him. It's like for me, I'm experiencing Tuesdays with Maury with this guy. He's like older than me. Great book, by the way, for those who haven't read it. Tuesdays with Maury. Yeah. So um, he was a college professor and he grew a long white beard and he had long white hair too. And then I was sitting with him and his beard was gone because he'd been doing chemo. And I said, gee, you know, how does it feel to not have your beard? And he said, you know, it's a funny thing. I grew this beard because as a professor, I wanted people to think I was wise. And I thought having a beard a long beard and long hair 
that fits in with being wise. He said, but you know what I realized? Like, I'm not wise at all. Wait, and I said to him, oh, that shows how wise you really are. So I think that uh, at a time in my life, I would have liked to have thought I'm wise, but I think that I'm at this point in my life, I, I'm so aware of, I don't really know anything. <laughs> I don't, not, not, I don't know anything really for sure, except for maybe like some of the safe assumptions, like the sun is going to come up in the east and it's going to go down in the west. I can, okay. All right. One plus one equals two. Okay. I'm good with that. But everything else for me is like just sort of like opinions and like, and I wonder if there's any science even. I mean, I know there's science, but science still feels like needs work to get to wisdom. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing. Fantastic. All right. What about a sliding doors moment in your life? I was a tennis pro at like the fanciest club on Long Island. And I would do there for 12 years or 13 years. And I was unhappy a lot. I mean, it was a great job. And while I was there, I was like, cranking it and my energy was great. And I did the job and I was enthusiastic. But deeper inside me, I didn't like working at a club. I didn't like working for anybody. I didn't like being told what to do. But in particular, I was starting to experience like dissatisfaction in terms of lack of respect that I felt there. It was a golf club primarily. You know, the golf pro who had been there as long as I was, he one day says to me, hey, Bill, how you doing? I'm like, no, Bob, right? I've been here like 12 years. You don't know my name, seriously. But I was feeling sad that on Sunday mornings, I would be driving to work and I'd see all the other dads getting bagels with their kids. And I was like unhappy that on Father's Day, on a Sunday, I was working and it was okay for me to bring my kids and I would run a parent-child tournament. My kids would match up with somebody else's, you know, another family because I couldn't play in it. And I just felt sort of small in the job, like compared to the people at the club who were people that I went to high school with because I lived in the area where this club. And I had just, I started to write about it. I, I often start to write not knowing what I'm going to get or where I'm going to go. And I started off by saying, I'm unhappy here. I like this job and I'm unhappy and it's a good job and I'm unhappy. I started to write down like the things that I liked about the job. Like I like the fact that I get to like be outside all summer. I like the fact that I'm running around and I'm working on my fitness all day. I don't have to go to the gym after work. I'm like really fit. I like the fact that I'm playing tennis. And I like the fact that people coming to me are saying, you know, my tennis lesson is one of the best parts of my week. And I realized when I started to have these more positive spins on, on what was going on, unintentionally, I realized that I'm teaching people stuff that they don't know anything about that turned out to be life skills because I was doing mental training for many years without even realizing it and not teaching technique and strategy. And people who say, oh, Bob stands up at the net and talks a lot. But that's what I was doing. And I realized 
this is a great job because I am teaching life skills to people that I've put up on a pedestal. And they don't know the first thing about being positive or being or welcoming adversity or finding a way to reduce tension when there's pressure or to love the pressure. Pressure is a privilege. And, and that was a turning point for me in going much faster in the direction I was already going. It, it, it accelerated for me, and it was less than six months later after that revelation that I was offered my first position at a hedge fund. I was so far away from that when I was at that club, but, but the shift in the story was massive for me, and I never looked back. Well, I went back to tennis club. <laughs> oh, got involved again with tennis. Always, absolutely, which is where you and I first met. So, shout out to PJ Simmons and everyone at Tennis Congress. Uh, hey, and I have another thought about like coaching that relates to us meeting. Actually, over the years, when I was teaching tennis, or even now, when I'm in, in this other universe of like client potential clients. There are, there are frequently times that I meet somebody and I think, I really want to coach that person. But I don't want to like say, you should be, let me coach you. Historically, what I used to do, and again, I wasn't that aware of doing it, but I, in retrospect, I am. I was sort of like a fishing rod. I would like throw it out there. I'd cast it out there and I'd get the hook in. And then I just wouldn't do anything, and I would slowly have this sort of like uh, the remember the movie Black Stallion. Uh -uh. Yeah, well, there was this Black Stallion. The boy was on an island, and that they were the only two living things there, basically. And the boy needed to get close with the stallion, who was a wild stallion. And every time this boy came close, the stallion would run away. But he kept getting closer and closer, and eventually he was able to touch him, and then he could climb on him, and then he was able to ride him. It's like. That's the way it was with clients for me that I would just, anyway, when I met you the first year, I knew that I wanted to know you better. I knew that. I knew that you had something very special and I like surrounding myself with special people and people I can learn from and I can help at the same time. And I kept thinking that I was getting the hook in you, but I didn't really feel I was making any progress. It was weird, but I kept hanging in there. And then I think right after you met Tina and then you would come over here and we chatted one time, I felt like, yeah, that, okay, I think that, yeah, Emma and I are connected now. And it's a similar thing in coaching that sometimes you go out after somebody and if they start to come closer and closer, then that connection is really great. I can't just force it. First year, it's like, hey, we got to talk. It's like that, but you were too busy. You were like, you know, you were the center of attention. Well, that was because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but I do remember on that note again, for those listening, I did come to Colorado to seek out a Bob and to come and meet with you. Remember, I I was not living here. I wasn't even working here, and I flew here, and you know, basically rented a car. And I remember now, like, it's so funny because I drive to where Bob lives all the time for my golf, right? 
And yeah. but I remember driving along that highway thinking, Oh my God, where am I going? <laughs> and what am I doing? <laughs> and you know, just to sit and have you generously gave me like an hour and a half of your time. And I just had this wonderful organic chat about where I was at because I really didn't know I was busy. Maybe those people can relate to. I was busy in the washing machine almost, just spinning. I didn't have a clear direction as I do now. So if you are stuck or you are thinking with your coaching, where do you want to go or what what do you want to, how do you want to direct your energy? then reach out to people like Bob uh, and people who you know deep down can point you in the right direction without telling you what to do. I think that's what I'm trying to get at here. It's taking action is better than doing nothing, especially when you're in the washing machine of not knowing where you're going and what you're doing. I was, I was being totally vulnerable there. Did that make sense? Yes. Okay. It makes sense to be vulnerable. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you're real. You're more real. Like, yeah, you can say like, oh, well, she's like a human being. She's not like, the, yeah, this, this shooting star that like is perfect. Mm. All right, Bob. Uh, it is our guiding question in one to a maximum of three words. What do you think makes a great coach? Patience, persistence, presence, pers- loving the journey. Hey, that's three words, but it's one idea. Mm-hmm. All right, now, now please expand. Okay. In a lot of ways, as a coach, I'm always coaching patience because people are like tripping over their own feet or their they're in the washing machine. And it's like, and it's, and for me, it's like, that's okay. That's where you are right now. I know, but I don't want to be there anymore. It's like, okay, but you are there now. And it's, it's a level of acceptance that's really key in being able to move forward. So on the one hand, I'm coaching patients, but on the, uh, on the other hand, I'm being patient. So I, I, I like to model that. And if people get a little overeager, that's okay too, but I'm going to stay patient in the hopes that they will maybe feel that rhythm. Persistence is probably one of the qualities that I have trained into my being that I'm most proud of. That to me, there is absolutely, somebody says, no, you can't do that. It's like, that's that's like a call to arms for me. So I always say, to me, there is no no. There is no no. So that goes for my work, the work that I encourage and expect from the people that sign up with me, that there isn't going to be this loss of, of momentum or interest or like, I can't do this. First of all, when they get there, okay, they're not being persistent, but that also just fires me up more. Um, so those two qualities, the the loving the loving the journey is like a, a a wider thing. I think that you know all of us 
who have done any sort of growth work uh, have seen the bumper stickers that say the journey, the destination is more important than the journey. It's been around for a long time, you know, like going back to Buddha, the Stoics, all the great philosophers, they're all saying the same thing that we are. Basically, we're just like have new words for it. And I feel that people are really good with loving the journey until the journey's bumpy, until it's not working out. For me, when I started competing as a tennis player, it was very bumpy. I had four years of playing national tournaments where I didn't win a match, main draw or back draw. I was winning some matches locally, but that wasn't the level that I belonged in. Um, and people who say, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep doing this? I'm like, well, you know, it's like I'm losing better. I'm getting closer. It's like, I feel like I'm going to get it. There's going to be something there for me in this work. And during all that time, and also the time of life, life being a little tougher or not liking my job, or I've always really liked the downs too. I, I, you know, I shouldn't say I like it. I, I love that there are downs. I don't like them, but I love them because it's in those moments that I'm forced to become somebody that I didn't know I could be. And to me, that's my life's work. My personal life work is to keep hitting these spots that feel difficult, that don't make me feel good, but make me fly and make me go forward and make me take another step in the direction of where I am going, which, you know, my dream is to like get to a place of like just oneness with the universe. I don't know if I'm going to be around long enough to get there, but I'm going to stay on the journey. And, you know, to have these really joyful, a joyful life. So it's really important for me to continue to love the journey, even with its warts. Great message for all of us out there. I think also when we hit those low points, we we sometimes then appreciate the uh, the other end of the spectrum more so versus I know that I've spent a lot of my life just trying to keep everyone happy and just trying to ride on the joy on the joyful plane all the time, <laughs> which I know is not possible. But especially with my personality, I want everyone to be happy, and I don't want conflict, and I don't, and I want to get everyone to get along. And of course, that's not that doesn't reflect any part of reality. So what I've learned over the years is to just appreciate those those drops and those dips. Because then it does makes me more grateful for when the when times are joyful. We talk for a couple of minutes about equanimity because it has yes. something to do with. What does it mean to you? I played a tennis match that I probably like. I played somewhere like I'd never lost more than a game or two in a set to him. In my age, a really great guy, really tries hard. There's just like he's he he can't beat me. He just can't. I mean, over the years, and it doesn't mean it won't happen at some point. But I was playing him, and I was just getting ready for another tournament, and I was playing a match to get ready uh, in a small tournament. And the guy gets out there, and I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm like down four or five in the first set. 
And I managed to pull it out. I win the match. And afterwards, Joanne, my wife, said, well, good job. I said, like, really? I was, like, terrible. I played awful. I called this friend of mine who's this very famous transcendental meditation teacher who's a good friend of mine. And I was like, you're going to love this. I was playing. And I was like, normally I would have been really upset, you know, like what was going on that I couldn't just take a charge. But I didn't seem to have any reaction to what was going on. I just kept playing. And it was like, I, I just had nothing going on except playing. And he said, well, you know, you've been doing your meditation for like a bunch of years now. It's like, you know, there's transitions that go on for you. And you you were, you know, what some people would say, you were in a state of equanimity. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, equanimity. I know that word. What does that mean again? <laughs> it's like, I, I said, like, equal? Like, what, balance? He said, well, equanimity, as he described it to me, or as I interpreted what he said was, equanimity is when you still are... are experiencing things coming at you, thoughts, feelings, they come at you, and there are reactions, but as they come at you, they just go through you. As if your brain is Teflon, not Velcro. Most of the time we go through our lives and our brains are like Velcro, like something comes in and it bothers and it stays with us and it's with us for the day and it affects our performance in the next five minutes. He said, you were like kind of there in this match. And I'm like, and when I hear something like that, I'm like, oh man, I'm, I'm getting to work on that. That's my day. I'm putting everything else on the shelf. I'm going to work on equanimity until I get it. And then I start to work on it my way, which is I tell the story and I like start telling other people, this is what I'm working on. And it's like, and I look for opportunities. And I recently, and so I've been doing working on this for nearly three years. And I mean, definitely I feel like a different person because very little affects me as it comes in. I still am affected by things, but like these spontaneous reactions are like not there. And I watched like the finals of Wimbledon. Those guys were separated by four points after five sets. Each of them lost nearly 200 points. You ne- it didn't look like that. I don't mean the game. They didn't look like they lost 200 points because they just were like going forward. They were staying down the middle. Yeah, they got upset like three times in four hours. I mean, really, that's equanimity. And the reason it popped up was about the ups and downs. When you mentioned the, you know, the ups and downs and that for to feel joy, you have to feel sorrow. So we've, we've learned about the duality of, of life, that there is no one, one side. Everything has another side. And yes, we can only experience happiness if we have also experienced despair or sadness. We can only experience health if we've experienced disease. We can only feel success if we've had no success. Okay, fine. Equanimity the, the people who really know this stuff and talk about it, like Joseph Goldstein, who's this meditation teacher, or Eckhart Tolle, they, they're saying like all day long we win and lose. Throughout the whole day, hundreds of times we are winning and losing. And if we're able to stay down the middle in a state of equanimity, the ups and downs don't affect us at all. 
And that's where our best work lies. That's where mastery lies. And our only shot at mastery is to be able to be in a state, not our only chance to be in a state of equanimity, but to be in a state of equanimity gives us a great chance of being masters of our lives. I'm like talking equanimity a lot with people right now. Like whatever they're talking about, to me it goes into the box of equanimity. Somehow, I get there. Interestingly, I've always said that you remind me of my dad. Shout out to Derry Doyle on the other side of the world. And he currently has told me that he has the secret to putting in golf. And I think I think it's exactly what you're talking about in that he's been studying the the left and right hemispheres of the brain and how you know the left hemisphere you could say is the one who's reading the speed of the green and the speed of the putt and you know which way is it going to uh to go left to right right to left or is it a straight putt and that's that the left side and then you've almost got to merge the two hemispheres together because the right side is is then the the creative side of knowing uh you know what you need to do in that moment and sort of letting go of the overthinking so that you can just trust yourself to to let it happen he hasn't yet told me the secret but he says he has the secret and that is the work that he's been doing on the on he he believes you know the two hemispheres have to work together uh, which you know, they get they get together. People who do any form of meditation are like creating this method of like the parts of the brain that work generally independently start working together, and that's you know something that science is showing us. You know, with an with an EEG, where we see what the brain waves are doing, and that they're crossing over a lot more for people who do any sort of mindfulness training. Mm-hmm. Another thought about the golf, by the way, is there's this incredible uh, moment in a movie, uh, the movie Bagger Vance, which was Matt Dillon, who was a uh, golfer, frustrated, and he was in a match against Bobby Jones. So it was a fiction, nonfiction. And Bagger Vance was the caddy played by Will Smith, and he was the philosopher. And at a certain point, he had said, it's now the time for you to see the field. He says to Matt Damon, to see the field. And Matt Damon's like, what are you talking about? He said, like, this is just this moment. And he describes a moment of the flow state. And the cinematographer does a great job of, of like softening the whole, what's going on in the movie. And birds all of a sudden fly away really quickly. There's dew in the air. It's like, and it's called, this This part is called Seeing the Field. Legend of Bagger Vance is the movie. People should YouTube it. It's just one of the great moments in movies in being able to demonstrate or show that state of the right and the left brain working together, of letting go of the flow state, the zone, and of course, the ball that Matt David hits is just like, oh my God, this is like amazing. What about business coaches who are listening to what we're talking about and they're saying, okay, yeah, Emma, yeah, Bob, this is great for sport, but how does that relate to me 
when I've got to make a high pressured business decision or I'm coaching someone in the in the workplace? Like how does this relate to to me and what I'm doing in the workplace? What are your thoughts on that? You know, the way you do the big things is the way you do the little things. And if you're living a good life, if you have ideals that you're really aligned with that contribute to you being the kind of person that you may see in other people or parts you see in other people, you're likely to do the other things in your life well. So if you're, I mean, if you're a good tennis player, it doesn't mean that you're living a good life. If you're living a good life, there's a pretty good chance that if tennis is what you do, you'll do it well. And I think that, you know, originally when I started working on Wall Street, people said to me like, oh my God, you work with those people. They're like really difficult. They're impossible. It's a bad industry. They take businesses out. They like, you know, they move the market, take advantage of it. How do you do that? And I said, you know, I'm working with individual people. People are people. No matter what it is they're doing, they're still people first. And, you know, in sports, we have this sort of formula like person first, player second. Become a good person. And, yeah, that works in sports, but I think it works well in business as well. And the challenge is that in business, it's such an analytical mindset that there's very little time set, spent on the creative side. And yet those people are the ones that say, you know, I make my best decisions when I'm in the shower or like when I'm getting a massage or when I go for a walk at the end of the day because they're entering into the more of the creative side of their brain. But they want answers that relate to how do I make more money? And early on at one of the hedge funds, I said, you want to make more money? Learn to focus on your breath once every hour. And they're like, how does that make me more money? I said, first of all, if you knew, you would be doing it. And second of all, it's not like a direct thing. A breath that you take equals your P&L goes up. But you getting to be somebody who can quiet the noise by being present, being able to really, really hear the signal and not the noise is a way for you to be more successful at being an analyst of companies and at making decisions about whether to buy or sell stock in that company, and to be okay with the outcome so you can go forward. One breath is fine. You know, maybe if you want to go to two after a while, maybe you want to like spend 20 minutes doing it, but there's no difference. The, you know, the business world seems to like think we're different, but they're not different than like moms who are raising kids. They have challenges. They lose their focus, they go offline, they go off their line. And getting clear on what their personal mission is and staying on track with that will answer most of their questions. Mm. Yep. Couldn't agree more. I don't right. like people pushing me off the line with that. Mm. You know, the business people are like, yeah, well, that's kind of like sort of, you know, is that like spiritual? I said, it's not spiritual. It's just like, this is the way life is. It's got ups and downs. You got to be solid anyhow. Yeah. You can't be so affected. But, you know, when people try to change me, it's like, I just get patient. <laughs> Look, what a great message. Everyone out there, coaches listening, just get patient. I've, that's fantastic. All right. What question sparks your curiosities? 
for me, the question I ask people that I that I'm like interested in that are very impressive to me is like, how do you decide what to work on in your life? And how do you work on it? And I was with this really amazing person um, who I coached maybe 20 years ago and we're still really close. And he's somebody who's like just beyond vertically successful in the finance world. And he's a pretty well-known guy and, you know, people revere him. And here I am having dinner with him and saying like, I think I was with some people the other night. They were telling me like, did I watch this podcast? Did I read this book? Did I like, have I watched that? Have you listened to this? And I'm like, I don't like to work on more than one thing at a time. Right. But I understand other people do lots of different things. So I was asking this guy, this other guy, like, how do you decide what to work on? Because I know you're so growth minded. You're always growing. And he said to me, I actually have this on my desk and I'm going to read it to you. He said to me, every day, Bob, I get up and I have three mantra statements. The first one is this. And let's say that his name was Emma. Okay, so he starts off, she would start off and say, Emma, transcend all humiliations, betrayals, and unfair suffering by attaining equanimity, by attaining enlightenment, by taking nothing personally, by loving the thing or person that humiliated you, betrayed you, or caused you the unfair suffering. This is your only shot at mastering and at clear seeing. That's the first mantra. Second one, Emma. Between the stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies our freedom and power to choose our responses. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom, which that's from man's first search for meaning. It's like brilliant. Victor Frankl. The third one is, Emma, are you grateful for today? Can you be present today? Can you check your ego at the door and embody a spirit of service today? And then he looks at me, and he wasn't reading this. <laughs> he looks at me and says, and then, Bob, what I do is I walk out my door and I friggin' go to battle for the day. That was his answer to my question that I had, which is, how do you decide what to work on? Which is this stuff. These are the things he's working on, not making a better decision about like what business to invest in, although that's part of his life, it's this. He says, if I can succeed at some of this during the day, it's a good day. If I succeed at all of it, it's been like a home run. And on those days that I don't succeed at these things, whether I win or lose at work, I always think tomorrow's another day. Yeah. This is what the podcast is all about. Borrows ideas from, from people and... uh and pay it forward because it's only going to help help others. So fantastic. All right. So speaking of stories, you know, I love when you spoke about your sliding doors moment, you first wrote down everything you didn't like about your job. And then you, what you wrote that you did like about your job. I know you've done a lot of work and you continue to do a lot of great work in helping people change their story. Could you talk through just the process for yeah. people out there? Yeah. 
It's a very, very simple process. I get on a, on a call with somebody and I ask them why they're calling me. And they tell me like, I'm not winning enough or I'm like, I'm too uptight or whatever. They, they've got, you know, they've got their stuff, right? Uh, sometimes it's outcome related. Sometimes it's just the way they are that they don't, they're not crazy about it. It's not working for them. And I make notes while they're writing and they usually are giving me like little things that are really relevant. Like somebody I spoke to yesterday was saying, like, I'm overly emotional and I started to cry when I started talking about stuff like at work. And it's like, I don't want to be that emotional and I'm overly affected by what people think about me and I'm overly sensitive. It's like, okay, that was the theme, right? So then I give it back to them. I said, well, okay, these are what I call your stories, your old stories, meaning the stories of who you have been up until this moment right now. You've gotten good at these stories. You didn't mean to but you've been practicing them. Now it's time to have a different story if you want. I mean, if you want, instead of being somebody who's like overly emotional, what if your story was, I'm a master of managing my emotional energy? The other person often says to me, well, that would be great, but I'm not. I know, but this is the work that maybe you might want to do so that you're no longer continuing to be the way that's not working for you. Because that way, that a very emotional, whatever it is, was not working for her to be more effective at work, for example, or in a relationship that she was having. So it was still outcome-driven. But to me, a person, before they change what they're doing, they need to change who they are. It's always sort of been like a basic in, in my work, that like, change who you are, then you'll change what you're going to do. So then once somebody says, okay, I like that new story, maybe there'll be five or six stories that will change into new stories. I say, okay, all you have to do now, very simple, is keep your eyes open during the day for when you're being like overly emotional. Obviously, and then this person said like, oh, I've got like so many times in the day. I said, great, because all those times are times that you get to do a repetition with your new story, which simply is just you saying, oh, I'm feeling emotional, that's my old story. I have a new story I'm working on, which is I'm a master of managing my emotional energy. You don't have to do anything yet. Just say that. Later in the day, another thing comes up. Just remind yourself you've got this new story. There's your old story over here, there's a new story here, you live in your old story, but the future you is the new story. One of these times that you say, oh, I have this new story, I'm a master of managing my emotional energy, you're going to think, I'm going to like go for a walk. I didn't tell her to go for a walk. I might have told her something else if she said, what am I supposed to do? But I'm not going to tell anybody what to do because people already know what they might do most of the time. Oh, go for a walk. Okay, good. All right, three, day, three days later, she still has enough, these things going on. She's like, I'm master of managing my energy. I don't have time to go for a walk, but I'm going to like do that thing that I see some people doing where they close their eyes and they like just sit quietly for a while. And all of a sudden, what's happening is this newer way of managing her emotions is organically sort of like happening and slowly 
beginning to become a part of her. Now, the end game, if there is one, is you don't need to tell yourself the new story because you've changed. And once you've changed, it's like, look, when we were kids, we had to be told, brush our teeth a lot. And we would go in there and maybe not even do it. We'd turn the water on and say, yeah, I did it, yeah, yeah. But then with enough practice, we don't have to think about doing it anymore as part of who we are. Like walking, like tying our shoelaces, like saying thank you. But even with thank you, kids need to learn to say thank you and do reps that say thank you. But there's always a, well, if I'm not saying it on my own, then it's not as good. No, it's not true. You got to do the reps. So that's how the method works. And really, a person can continue to write new stories every single day, anytime anything comes up that's not working for them, like some pebble is in their shoe. Okay, what's a better story? Oh, I take my shoe off, I take the pebble out, and I then put my shoe back on. I don't have to live with a pebble in my shoe or a way of being that I don't want to be or a thing I think that I don't like to think. And hopefully people, when they finish working with me, they know they're going to write a new story. And one of their new stories is I'm a story writer. That's who I am. That's what I do. If things not right, I write a new story. And then I get to work on it. And what's the value of writing it down? Well, you take yourself out of the loop. Mentally, we're really good at looping thoughts, and we let certain thoughts exit when we don't like them, and we kind of forget about that. When you write something down, it's a more linear experience. There's a beginning and an end to what you are actually thinking. It's like that you can see on the page now. Even if you don't read it again, you've, you've identified something and not just gone into some sort of... Uh, ruminating about something. You, do, you don't ruminate once you write because it's there it is. Now you can look at it and say, gee, that's not as bad as I thought it was or it's like, ooh, I got to do something about that. And if that were some a friend of mine who said that I'd be great at helping them, why don't you try this instead? So I think that writing is just like so important to us knowing who we are and that it's great self-therapy, and you don't need to be a good writer. Look, you wrote a book. You know what it takes to write. You're a good writer. I wrote a book. It's like, it's hard. But you don't need to be a good writer to write down. You can start a sentence saying, I'm a mess right now, and see what comes from that. And every now and then, you're going to write something that will be an epiphany. Like, oh my God, I could actually do something about that. Yeah. The one thing I want to pick up on that really resonated was connecting action, whether, you know, that be a walk or simply writing something down with a thought as well. So I, sometimes to help people bring it to their conscious awareness, to raise that level of self-acceptance, having an action associated with that, whether it be being aware of one breath every hour is an action to help make change uh, that then comes from, you know, the client's idea around what's gonna what's gonna help them to create the new story. That's something a subtlety I think that is really important. I have a lot of success with my clients, just having a, a behavior attached to that new that new story or that new habit that they want to create. Right, and that thing is important, but it's so, it's a, it's a great tool. And then trans transition occurs and transformation. And another thought about transformation and the change is like. 
when people go on this journey to change something, when they hire a coach, they all, like I said about the guy who ended up joyful every morning, wants to be joyful every morning, they have an idea of what they want. But when you do transformative work, you never know where you're going to end up. You really don't. And that's like one of the reasons I think that people have some hesitation and that people who enter the game really, really end up realizing like, well, my best plans were not really connected to where I really wanted to go, apparently. I to transform myself and, and became less emotional. There was greater clarity for me in the direction I was going. I thought that I needed to fix my emotion. No. You needed to like, experience a different way of being in order to find out what you really want to do. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's finish on redefining winning. What's your definition of winning? And I know I certainly have a lot of parents call me and say, my child just needs to win more. They just need to be more confident. For me at the beginning, when it was everything was about winning. When I first started playing, I just wanted to win. But then also what would happen would be, because I didn't feel that good as, as a tennis player, because I was losing a bunch, when I would win, I would like discount it. Oh, they, the guy played badly. I was lucky. I didn't own the win. And when I lost, it always felt terrible. So I was like, this is, there's something wrong in this. Like, I'm, I'm not, there's something off. These people that are really good must have a different way of thinking about this because I'm unhappy with my, my tennis results. So I started a, particular part of my journal where I started to write down the things about tennis that I really liked. like, And some of them were these. like, I love the fact that tennis, play, competing in tennis, forced me to be a good winner and a good loser. Playing tennis forced me to be accepting and forgiving of myself for my inability to be perfect. Playing tennis gave me a reason to work out. It gave me a reason to eat well. It gave me a reason to make decisions about what kinds of people I wanted to be around. Not too many toxic people. Uh, tennis gave me like an experience where there were times I would just feel too tired to go on, but I'd find another ounce of energy. Or I'd be on the precipice of losing with no hope and to find hope and to take a step away from the precipice and sometimes even win from there. Tennis has given me and makes me like learn things like equanimity. Each of these things are wins for me when I play. And look, winning the match is probably like tied for number one with most important. The other, what it's tied with for me is playing a really pure match where I just feel really great about what I did. I might win, I might lose the last point, but I feel wonderful with the experience that I've had. So I'm not sure which is the bigger win. I, I know that some of the win, the actual wins I've had have been like, you know, I won the world championship. That was like, all right, that's like really great. I want to put that up on my shelf. But playing a great match, playing a match in the way that I like perceive this is who I want to be as a player, I want that on my shelf also. And it's like pretty close. Most matches are not like the biggest match. So to me, 
winning or losing them is not what determines for me whether I've won or not. And if I am winning at these other things that I kind of listed, there's a good chance I'm going to win the other thing too, because being a good winner, good loser, not making excuses, being kind to my opponent, you know, appreciating, welcoming adversity, all these things that that are part of me winning in tennis, they help me win. But I don't do them for that. That's like, at the beginning, I did them for that. Like, oh, if I'm a good winner or a good loser, I'll win more. It's like, but no, I just want to be that. Well, on that note, with patience, persistence, presence, and loving the journey with equanimity, <laughs> it's been a wonderful chat, uh, Bob. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for the way that you see the world and for impacting my life and all of our podcast listeners. And may we continue to uh, live the best story of our life. You're the best, mate. I appreciate you and uh, thank you. Thanks for having me, Emma. I do have a website. And he's got a great blog. Great blog as so, well. A lot of my blogs are there and I've got to get the more recent ones there once I get my act together on that. But thank you for having me. It's always great being with you. and Yeah, hanging out. Appreciate you so much. Thanks everybody for listening. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by Transition Coach for Athletes, a global coaching, mentoring, and U.S. College sporting scholarship placement service. The service helps athletes navigate the often challenging world of choosing your best college fit while maximizing sports performance. Visit www.transitioncoachforathletes.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating review on your podcast listening device. And don't forget to tell a fellow coach about the show. The ball is in your court to take action and enjoy your coaching.